New York City in the late 80s and pretty much through the mid-90s was a totally different animal than what you see today. Drugs and crime were rampant. Prostitutes and strip clubs lined 8th Avenue. Washington Square Park was a drugs bazaar. If you told the New Yorker in 1994 that Times Square would in just a few short years be a corporate Disney-fied family tourist destination full of chain restaurants, they would have laughed in your face, asked you what drugs you were smoking, and then probably asked you if they could buy a dime bag of it off of you. In a pre-9-11 world, the NYPD had no teeth and a very difficult time keeping the city safe. So as a result, the night life was amazing. On a given Saturday night, you had double-digit options of what clubs to go to. And as a result, the competition was fierce. So many club owners hired party promoters and drug dealers to fill their dance floors and coffers. And one of the best was a kid by the name of Michael Alec. The parties he threw at Limelight and other establishments all across New York City are those of legend. He and club owner Peter Gation became the kings of New York nightlife by the mid-90s. But it all in a few short years came crashing down. By that time, Michael Allen would become desperately addicted to drugs. And in a story right out of a movie, I mean, you couldn't even make this shit up. He gets involved in the killing and dismemberment of a drug dealer named Angel Hernandez. Michael would spend the next 17 years in prison convicted of manslaughter, five of which in solitary confinement. Michael Alec's story is that of New York City legend, and it's still being written. He just got out about a year and a half ago. I can't thank Michael enough. He was very, very gracious with his time. So here's my talk with Michael Alec. I was thinking about you the other day. I figured out a way to totally cement your comeback, bro. How's that? It's like guaranteed success. I'm so surprised you haven't done it yet. And you're going to tell me in how many minutes? It takes one sentence. Born again Christian, bro. Boom. Oh, boy. All you got to do... I don't know if I have it in me. Listen. I don't know if I have it in me. All you got to do is carry around a Bible, wear some Dockers, and after everything you say, you just have to say... Praise the Lord. Exactly. Praise (laughs) the Lord, amen, or both. You'd be at fucking McDonald's. You'd be like, hey... Can I have a burger, fries, amen. Praise Jesus. I mean, it, I, could, I could actually do that with a straight face if I was, if I, if I was praising a different Lord. So. Who's your Lord? You mean Satan? No, my, has, my Lord has, um, I was just talking to somebody about this a minute ago. My Lord has um, seven heads and um, a belt of skulls. Nice. That's genius. Dude, I talked to a Satanist the other day. Modern day Satanism is, is really nothing. It's just like atheism. I'm, I was going to say, when you, if, if you read the, um, the tenets of Satanism, we're kind of all Satanists. <laughs> Dude, you're totally right, because it's more about yourself. It's celebrating right. yourself, it's you know? Being selfish, yeah. You know, I interviewed the head of the Satanic Temple, Lucius Greaves, and he's kind of taken over as like this new political Satanism. Yeah, I, I, I know him. If you, if you look at the tenets of Satanism and then look at the... Um, the credo of the United States, it, it kind of, it kind of coincide. When I, when I looked into it, when I was doing the interview with him, it was so boring when I found out exactly what it was because it was nothing like praying to some horned demon or like sex orgies or bungee cords with witches cackling and burning Bibles. It was just so boring. Right. As compared to my preconception. That's why, that's why the terrorists want to kill us because we, we say that we are you know, this God-fearing nation, but we're actually a nation following Satan. They even call us the great Satan. I thought about that too, bro. In this election cycle, the social conservatives are dying for a new leader. If you went to born again Christianity, you could totally be their leader. Well, or I could, I could secretly work for the liberals 
by pretending to be the leader Boom. of the um, of the right of the radical right, which would be bad for them. Kind of like a poison pill. Right. That could be my new job. Bernie Sanders looks like he wants to take a nap. You know, Hillary Clinton. I mean, f- I mean, do you, I, this girl scares oh, me. Means that grating voice. I, I will do anything, not just not to have to hear that voice every day before you. And her eyes like bulge out of her sockets. It's almost like remember Total Recall with Arnold when he was on Mars and the pressure system broke. A naggy bitch. And she's an insider. And I don't trust her. Like, why would I want her around to be my president? Yeah, I mean, the SNL skits will be okay. But I don't really even watch SNL anyways. No, I haven't watched that in 20 years. Who does? <laughs> you know? But you're, you're in a very unique position, dude, because you went away 17 years. Uh-huh. You were basically in a time warp. When you went in, there was like pay phones on every corner still. There's no cell phones. The internet was in its infancy. People are using pagers. Giuliani was just getting started with these whole nightlife laws. What was the biggest changes that you saw in New York when you got out? Well, I mean, you know, there was just, there were the physical changes, the bike lanes and the, the New World Trade Center and all those things. And it, it kind of made me realize how quickly everything in, everything in New York kind of flips. I, I don't know how anybody can really, you know, 50, 100 years ago, people could start a business in New York City on Broadway or Sixth Avenue or whatever, a restaurant, a grocery store, and it would be, it could thrive for like 100 years or, or longer. Um, I see now that people open up things and they close in six months or three months or a year just because the rents are too high and nobody can afford it. And um, I don't see any, any longevity there, which is a basic instability in the city. So I noticed that. I noticed that everything is fleeting in the city. Nothing is permanent anymore. And I noticed that there are, there's, of course, everything goes out saying there's less personality in the city. It's, they're Dunkin' Donuts and Starbucks and McDonald's. And, you know, there was, the first McDonald's come to the city was a, it was a huge fight over that. Um, nobody wanted McDonald's in the city. And, and after McDonald's came in, they said that it would open up a floodgate for all of, all of them, the pizza hut, for, you know, Burger King, Dunkin' Donuts. And, and it did. Once they let McDonald's in, they, they all could, they'd taken over every, every corner. It's just not New York. Because, I mean, New York used to be grimy. Yeah. You know, I remember New York in the 90s. But I started going to the city when Hell's Kitchen really meant hell. You know, it was rough. And on the west side. There are still elements of grime. I, even in, the, even in, in Times Square, I noticed that the Elmos and the Mickey Mouse, Minnie Mouse characters that they have walking around there are usually the ones who are um, arrested for Muslim kids. So, um, like, sort of like you could take the, uh, you could take the uh, sleeve out of Times Square, but you can't take the Times Square out of or something like that. So it's, it's even, if, even if you try and clean it up, it's sort of like, it's sort of like weed that you come back at. Yeah, every once in a while, because I used to work for Sirius XM, and um, when I would get out, it was on, I was on 48th and 6th, and when I'd get out, every once in a while, somebody would try and proposition me for like a prostitute or try and get me to buy Coke, but it was very, very random. It wasn't like a regular thing. Like I remember what back early 90s, when you could buy like a stun gun, a bag of heroin, and a fake ID on 8th Avenue. And that and those days are over. And when um when I don't know which mayor it was, but when one of them started their crackdown and making sure you have to be twenty one to get into a club, the tunnel uh, instituted a um a field trip up to Times Square for everybody to get fake IDs. And I mean, there's they were they were realistic. Oh yeah, they were pretty good IDs. Yeah, hell yeah, I used one <laughs> when I was like fourteen. I used to have one. Do you go into the city at all or no? Or you stay in Brooklyn? No, I go. We went to space a couple weeks ago. 
It was the most depressing experience. I wish I wouldn't have gone. Why? What happened? It was just, just depressing as hell. I mean, there was no energy. The dance floor had no energy. It was, you know, surrounded by security guards guarding these roped-off tables that were empty. And, you know, it was just had like this, felt like kind of like North Korea. You were partying in the demilitarized zone. Do you go out a lot or no? No, there's nowhere to go. It's fucking sad, man. Why, why are you still in New York? Um, well, I don't know where else I'd go. Um, you know, maybe Detroit. I don't know. Well, they're looking to rebuild. Yeah. Did you hear about the guy they're trying to open up a zombie theme park? No. Some developer wants to use all the dilapidated buildings to open up like a zombie theme park. So you can go oh, and like, zombies will chase you around. Like people that live in the area, you know, they said they're going to give all these people jobs and to be like zombies. And you probably have like wow. a paintball gun. You could kill people with a paintball gun and, and run around and stuff. But I don't, I don't know if they allowed them to do it yet. If who allowed them to do it? The city of Detroit, because they own the property. Is there anybody in the offices to stop them? I don't know how that works. That city is so fucked. It's bankrupt. I, you'd figure they would use yeah. anything for money, but I, I think it was something about the image. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, geez, you're on your last legs here, dude. I don't think they have to be worrying about their image right now. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty fucking bad as it already is, you know? So, dude, you had a great propensity to truly not give a fuck. All these outlaw parties, dressing up in diapers and face paint and all this shit. You took a lot of risks, bro, and that took a lot of balls back in the day. I don't think it did, though. I think it would take a lot of balls now. You don't think so? You don't give yourself credit for that? I mean, I think it was, it was easy to do back then. I mean, nobody was going to do anything. I, you know, no, it was kind of, it's kind of a, it was kind of a no risk factor there. Because, I mean, what was going to happen? What was the worst that could happen? Yeah, but what's the worst that could happen today? Um, jail. Well, I'm not even talking about the illicit activity, but just actually going out and putting yourself out there like that, so publicly, no inhibitions. I mean... There was a lot of thought process that went into what you did. That's what I'm trying to get at. Yeah, um, but, you know, that's the reason I created this scene around me of people who are kind of like-minded people, so that I would be surrounded by people who felt the same way I did, and so that it wasn't really um, taking such a risk doing it anymore. Which is, I was I had an army. But you had to gain that army. Right. The club kids were kind of like, um, in the beginning, they were kind of like a, a movement for disenfranchised youth, right? Like, come yeah. and, and you could be whatever you want to be. In essence, what you were doing, from what I've read, when you were dressing up like these Andy Warhol crazy type of creatures, was you were parodying the nightlife of yeah. New York. Yeah, definitely. For a while, you fucking own the city, New York is one of those places where it's like it punches you in the mouth as hard as it can and then waits to see if you react. And if you cry, mm -hmm. it keeps punching you and punching you until you leave, right? <laughs> it's very true. And, mm -hmm. But if you laugh and you go with it and you keep and you punch back, it'll at least respect you for a little while. Yeah, that's kind of like what I was talking telling you about the restaurants and the stores that open up. Um, if, if they, you know, they'll last for a little while for as long as they'll take the abuse and then and then, you know, the city swallows them up eventually. But when you did it, you didn't just punch the city. You rabbit punched the city in the balls. And it loved That's you for the it. Was, the city was kind of uh, um, defenseless. <laughs> defenseless? Yeah. Interesting. How so? Well, because the, the police, they had no real police police uh, force. The police force was, was dwindling. There was no money to pay them. And they had no... Um, they had no self-esteem. They had no... They didn't care about the city at all. 
Um, the mayor didn't care about the city. Um, real estate prices were plummeting, so it, it was kind of, you know, you could kind of do anything you wanted. Nobody cared enough about the city to protect it. And and you saw that, right? And you took advantage of it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, it was definitely a planned thing. I mean, we had meetings. Me and Rudolph, the owner of Tunnel, and at the time, uh, Dan Fateria and Mars and Black Palladium, we actually had meetings of this. So, um, he would, he would uh, report every morning how many murders there were, how many crimes there were, and we were just elated, keeping the police busy and so they couldn't focus on us, basically. People, I think, after everything that's happened with you, they kind of forget the fact that you started out just as a lowly busboy. And then you worked your way up to become one of the biggest nightclub promoters in New York history. What was your goal? What did you want? It was mostly an I'll show them kind of thing. Like you kind of, uh, you know, wanting to throw your success up in the face of the people who, the naysayers. Because I wanted the kids in high school to see me in the papers and stuff like that. The kids in high school that you went to in rural Indiana? Right. And you weren't treated pretty well out there, huh? Um, not really, no. And it was kind of difficult to be gay in a conservative rural area. It, back then it was more difficult than it is now, for sure. Do you think that's, that attitude kind of helped you, in a sense? Because New York is a tough town. A lot of people come and a lot of people leave. Yeah, it definitely made me stronger. What's probably amazing to people, to, in the beginning you were drug-free. Yes, yes. Like you didn't start doing drugs and anything until much later. Yeah, about 22 so in the beginning, you had these ideas, you were using them, it was going your way. What I'm saying is you had to have your thoughts on point. Like you were very driven, weren't you? Or would you say this kind of, this career fell in your lap? No, I was very driven. I mean, because, you know, the rents were cheaper back then, but it was so expensive for me. So I felt like we were kind of on this treadmill that we had to continually earn money in order to live there. And um, I mean, that was only $1,600, but that was a lot of money back then. And I, I just felt that we had to continually be on top of things in order to be making money. We were making a lot of money, but more money than, than we realized at the time. We didn't realize that we were rich back then. But we, we actually were. We, were. we would have been considered part of you know, probably the 2% of the country. So, but you know, even in New York City, the 2% isn't really rich. Do you think you got greedy? No. No. I, if I would have been greedy, believe me, um, I would be rich right now. Um, because the clubs were making so much money. If I would have been greedy, I would have um, been making a lot more money. So then around that time, you meet Peter Gation. Mm-hmm. This guy was a legendary club promoter. He owned the biggest clubs in Manhattan, Limelight, Palladium. He just rented it. He, was a, he didn't buy it. Okay, he rented it. Okay, but and he put you in charge of it because his attendance was so down and you were, you were such a draw. You were doing so well at Danceteria that he said, here, take control of Limelight uh, I said that the lineup was kind of a, a no-brainer to take over because nobody had been there, and there were no other clubs left to go to, no other big clubs. So what did Peter Gation mean to you? Um, I mean, you know, in the beginning, we didn't get along. He, um, we fought, actually, and, um, and then he caught me trying to sabotage him, and we, we had a long talking, and he got that he comes, and, um, and I told him, and he, he apologized, and he said he would change. I mean, it's kind of like a, a relationship, and he did change. So um, then we became closer, and he became sort of more like a father figure, I suppose, than a boss. But like a, a cool father that, you know, brings home teenage girls to sleep with. And, you know. Right, a, a cool father figure that'll like smoke dust with you in the Four Seasons. 
Like, he didn't do that. Cocaine. He didn't do that. But I mean, you yeah. guys had you guys had wild times, bro. Do you talk to him at all or no? No, he doesn't talk to us. He doesn't talk to me or Jennifer or anybody. Why do you think that is? Because he's not happy with um the um way he was portrayed in the limelight documentary. I saw it. I thought he came out okay. Uh, yeah. Oh, he came out much more, much more than okay. He came out, you know, looking a hundred times better than he, than he normally should. Well, didn't his daughter produce it? Yes. Well, if your daughter's producing it, she got, she's got to really hate you to sell you out into the river. Well, she doesn't though. She made him. She made him. I think look a lot. You know, look a lot better than he is. But it just wasn't not good enough. Mm. I read Chemical Cowboys by Aiming Sweeting Water. Did you ever read that? I did. Did you think that book was accurate or no? <sighs> no. Um, I mean, parts of it were the parts that you know the, the parts where they start getting into the, the mob and the mafia and the exiting and the Israel connection. I don't know anything about that. So. Right. But I can only assume by how correct or incorrect they were with our part of the story. I can only assume how incorrect they were to the other parts of the story. Well, there was a part in it that shocked me when they were talking to Matt and Bob, the uh, federal uh, DA. Yeah, the DEA guys. Right. They said that I was the, uh, the, all of the, whatever, the, the people they were arresting. Um, the only one that they cared anything about was me <laughs> because they thought that I shouldn't, that I shouldn't have been there. And then there was a part where, like, they talked about how Benjamin Braffman, Peter Gation's lawyer, came and made you change your testimony by promising you things. Was that true, too, or no? Yeah, he didn't make me change my testimony. What he did was he met with my lawyer, and then after my lawyer met with him, um, my lawyer suggested I change my testimony. And, and I thought it was really suspicious because it seemed like he was now the lawyer for Peter. Um, he was protecting Peter, excuse not me. And he, and he also said that I shouldn't be surprised if I hear about a lump sum of money that was paid to him by, by Benjamin Braston because, um, because I wasn't paying him very much money and, and Benjamin was subsidizing the cost of my legal defense. And I thought that was very strange. Weird. Yeah, there was no like loyalty in a sense. It's almost like, did you see that Netflix show, Making a Murderer? I, I've heard of it. Dude, you should watch it because it's a very similar situation. The poor kid was in there and uh, one of the attorneys was kind of in collusion with the prosecutor. And in writing his testimony, the lawyer was like feeding him what to say. It was very mm -hmm. strange. And it, it sounds a lot like what happened with you, I, I would guess. Do you think your lawyer did a good job for you? I don't know. I mean, you know, I mean, there were people who, in prison, who got a lot more time or doing a lot less. So, so maybe. But um, he didn't do anything that we didn't do ourselves. I mean, basically all of the good that came in, in the hearing something came from, from us, me and Priest. So, um, no, he didn't, he didn't add anything. We could have probably done the same without him. You, do you think you should have went to trial? Um, probably not because I mean they would have probably changed the charges to um to more suit what actually happened so that they would be found guilty. You mean they might have came in with like capital murder instead of manslaughter? No, no, no. I bet the other way. I think they would have gone down. I think they would have um, gone down to something a lot less severe in order to get the um the, the guilty conviction. Oh, so you think that it would have been better to do a trial then? I think that what? I think we would have been found guilty anyway. Um, but when you go to trial, you get more time. So it would have probably balanced itself out. 
So the success is rolling in, right? You got the penthouse in New York. You're throwing the hottest nights in the city. You got all the attention, cover of magazines, appearances on Donahue and Geraldo. But amazingly, you're still not happy. Well, why do you say amazingly? From the outside looking in, you have all the success, man. You're doing all these amazing things that people pray their whole life to get. It doesn't feel that way when you're doing it. How did it feel? It just felt like any regular job. It felt like, you know, it felt like, you know, you don't want to wake up today to go to work. You know, it's the same kind of thing. It's the same, it's the same kind of uh, rat race, kind of. So you felt trapped? Uh, yeah, I mean, but like anybody else would have a job. Because it was because of the quick money, you, you become used to it and then your expenses go up and then you have to do it. So it's kind of like being a drug dealer. People don't stop being drug dealers because the money is so easy and fast and they, they come to need it, you know? So we came to need it. Our rents were going up and we, now we had a mortgage. And so we needed to continue to do it. There's just no way we could have stopped. So in a sense, you became addicted to the success or you had to retain. There was a lot of pressure to retain your status. Yes, there was a lot of pressure to retain. And that's why we kept paying drug dealers and, and other people to come to the club because we, we were trying to keep people from going to other clubs. Because it was a real cutthroat business, right? And if they're not going to have fun at your place, they'll just go somewhere else. Right. And then the, even, the, even the drug dealers became hip to that. And so they would, they would accept the money um, and come to our club, but then they would send uh, their drugs to other clubs with other drug dealers. So then we had to pay them too. And it was, it was just getting, going on and on and on. Damn. So when did you start taking heroin? Because all the other drugs uh, and stuff, they're party drugs. I mean, PCP, listen, I've seen grown men smoke PCP and they, look, they fucking break down. You know, they cry like little bitches. But heroin is a different animal. Yeah, probably 93. Do you think that was like the start of the downward spiral? Yes, definitely. What was it? You were missing something? You felt like a void? Yeah, uh, you know, it was, uh, <laughs> it sounds so corny. It was, um, it was a relationship. It was probably what I was missing. When I felt I was missing. Although now I realize that I didn't need one. Back then, I, I felt that I did need one. Uh, it was it was just another another thing that I thought I needed, you know. When actually, you know, it's the it's the Wizard of Oz thing. There's, you know, everything you needed was right there in your shoes. <laughs> um, I, I I would have never believed that back then. I, I thought that I did need something. You needed companionship. Uh huh. And and then you know, and then when you're on cocaine, you need special K. And then when you're on cocaine K, you need withdrawal. And when you're on cocaine K, withdrawal, you need heroin. And you know, it's so it's it's sort of an unending. You're always in need of something. Did you like realize like after a while was like just like one day turning into another? Yes, definitely. Because I would assume like time just didn't mean anything anymore because you're going out to all these events every night, sleeping during the day, maybe a couple hours, going out again every night. There was something to do, taking drugs constantly for years. Yeah. I'm surprised we're still hearing that we look relatively different. I mean like, uh, you know, the people I went to high school with, I, I, I go home to Indiana and I see they're like 300 pounds and like they look, you know, they look like they're like, you know, they look like grandparents. It's kind of like, I'm, I guess I'm Dorian Gray. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, well, yeah, I, as long as you're not sucking any necks. Um, mm -hmm. So do you go home to Indiana a lot or no? No, I try not to go home very much. Hey, your mom is German, right? Yes. Konen Sie Deutsch sprechen or nein? Uh, I'm Bitsen. Bissian, interessant, huh? Mm -hmm. What city are you in? Uh, Frankfurt. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've been here. I moved here four years ago, and um, 
and I had to learn the language. It was hard as fuck. Oh, why did you family? My family. My wife, uh, oh. she wanted to be here to to watch her parents die. I guess you know. So oh, that's nice. Yeah, it's, it's nice. But me and my me and my schwiegerfather, we get along pretty well. After they die, you gonna go back? I don't know, man. I kind of like it here. Europe is a different animal. It's really cool. Like it kind of grew on me. At first, I was so impatient. It's so civilized. Yeah, and what really what weirded me out was the patience. Because mm -hmm. coming from New York, we want it now. We want it yesterday. We want you know, no, no. everything is so fast and moving, and you got to make decisions. Yeah. Like even walking to work, you, there's thousands of people in your way, and you're just like, get the fuck. And everything is about you. And here, it's like you have to take a step back. For my first thirty years on this planet, I was like <gasps> holding my breath, and then here I moved, and it was like I could exhale. It was weird, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it seems like you're surrounded by a lot more intelligent people over there too. Oh, completely, because I'm not bombarded with all this mainstream media bullshit on a constant basis. Mm -hmm. Over here, I watch all the news. I watch Russia Today. I watch Al Jazeera. I watch CNN. You go to one source all the time, and, and they're going to formulate your opinion, you know, about right. world events. And I try to diversify as much as I possibly can. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And the Germans are very objective when it comes to media here, because after Hitler and Goebbels. Oh, I know. I know. It's like they're never going to stop beating themselves up over that. No, they never will. So let me get back to you. So you're doing heroin now. This is the downward spiral. If you could pick a point mm -hmm. in time when things started to go unravel, when was it? 94, probably. So then you throw a party called Bloodfest. Well, we, that party we, we did every year. You did it every year? Yeah. Because of the whole flyer. You even have to admit, that's fucking prophetic. It is prophetic. And I, mean, I, I just found one the other day that uh, was so completely creepily prophetic that it, 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 it was actually, it was from 1991, and it was probably the first blood piece. It had a picture of a, of a person being dismembered on, on a table, and, and people around the body gleefully holding up legs and arms. I saw the American Justice one. I love that guy's voice. Did you see the American Justice one about you? Uh, I did. That guy is the voice of God. I want him to, like, MC my funeral. Yeah. <laughs> Your lawyer was on. And for those that don't know, it's a flyer, like you described it. It's, it's, it's you being dismembered, right? Your head's cut off, and it says Bloodfest yeah. on it. Yeah. And your lawyer, at, 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 during the American Justice Show, he saw this flyer, and he was like, oh, my God, we have to cop a plea. Yeah, yeah. That was, it, it was impossible to explain. There's no, there's no way we could have um, explained to anybody uh, why that would have been funny or why, you know, why, you know it, 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 given what had happened. There was just no way. Well, it probably made it look worse that it happened before the crime than after the crime. Because at first we thought it happened after the crime. And they were thinking that you know, we were mocking the crime because it just mirrored the crime so perfectly. But when they figured out that it was before the crime, uh, it was probably even worse. Have you ever reached out to his family? No, I'm not allowed to. Oh, you're not allowed to? You have a restraining order? It's not exactly... It might be. I don't think it's called a restraining it, It's something I find when we find the, um, the pre-agreement that... I think what scares people the most about your situation, deep down, they probably never say this in public, but people that lived your lifestyle, doing drugs, staying up all night, like deep down, I think they think that that could have been them. Um, well, it could have been. I mean, not to the extent maybe what you did, you know what I mean, by throwing the body into the river and cutting it up, but even to the extent like I know a guy who was driving, he was driving two people around and he was in a convertible top, he was drunk, they were smoking weed. He crashed. Both girls died. 
Yeah, I mean, well, you know, you talk about the playing about the You would be surprised at what you could do if um, the lives of you and your friends and the job and livelihoods of a thousand people are at stake. Um, and, you know, and you know that you just have to take care of one thing in order to make those things safe. You would be really surprised at what you could do. You felt like there was a thousand people that... I don't understand. What do you mean? Well, because we had four clubs. Um that I was directed with the time, they would have all been, I knew that they were all going to close down if it came to light. And we were 900 employees in, in this whole club. The whole thing would have come crashing down. Every single club kid with a job, every black kid, every DJ, and Bernard, everybody that I knew would be out of work and um, and kind of blaming it all on me. I, I knew that, you know, um, and please. And, you know, we, we felt that if we could just, and Peter knew that, and so, if we could just keep it from, you know, becoming known, um, then, you know, we've already just devastated my life by, by dragging a thousand um, innocent bystanders. So you told Peter about it. That was, that's been a point of contention, that Peter knew about it. Yes. Wow. So he knew about the, the killing, and he just told you to get rid of it. He didn't actually, he never actually said those words. He just tended to be money. Which, of course, you went right out and bought drugs in. I think what people have a, large, a hard problem with in regards to this is, is that you went back to work. I know your job was the club and that sort of thing, but you went back to work. What was it like living with that burden, man, that secret? Well, I don't know about, I don't know what, when you say back to work. I, because I, I mean, there, was, there, was, there was no working after that. Oh, there was no working. You did not work after that. I barely worked before that. But um, I definitely didn't look after um, because at that point there was no. I, I was taking some drugs that I was not coherent and I couldn't walk and you know. You were just totally fucked up off of heroin. Mm -hmm. Well, it, it was a combination of heroin and cocaine and special K and ethanol and ecstasy and speed and you know. You did not know what the fuck was going on. No, I didn't. And um, and Peter kept putting me in these inpatient. 72-hour detoxes, which was ridiculous, because um, you come out just exactly the same as you went in. It does nothing for you. You got to go at least like a couple months to dry out. And then you, you were afraid to leave New York City because you felt that the world was going on without you. So you, you, now you can leave New York City, but, but you really felt like you, know, you could not leave New York City. How did you tell your mom? I don't remember. She said I, I called her. I, it must have been over the phone, but I don't remember. I mean, I, I, it's all it's all a blur after that. Do you remember the DEA agents showing up, taking your confession? I remember them showing up, but I don't remember, remember getting in my confession. Did you think you were going to be serving that much time? No, um, but I, 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 the only thing I was thinking about was um, how am I going to get about heroin when I'm in prison? So they let me take some with me. Actually, they let me take two bags with me because they knew that I was going to be sick, and they didn't want me throwing up in the car. And they said that I had bigger things to worry about than that, so they're not gonna, they're not gonna worry about a couple of bags of heroin. The DEA? What? They didn't give it to me. They just said I could put it with me. That was Gagne, Special Agent Gagne. It was Matt and Bob. Bob Trimanowski. Um, no, Matt. Matt, Matt and Bob Gagne. Yeah, that Bob Gagne. Whoa. They would pick me up at Rikers and take me to uh, meet Brian, my drug dealer, and he would come in the back seat. And they would get out and kind of like walk up the street for a minute and let him sit in the back of the scene. We would do, you know, go up and like <laughs> get cozy. <laughs> oh, is that right? Holy shit. 
damn, bro. They wanted Peter Gation so bad, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That they just wanted your testimony against him. They didn't give a shit what you did. Right. Yeah, they didn't. So if it was going to give you a couple hits of heroin and you're going to tell them what they want to know, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, they, they basically wanted me to lie, and, um, and I mean, outrageous lies. So I just, you know, I, I couldn't do it. And, um, and once they found out that I couldn't, wouldn't do it, they became furious with me. They wanted to charge me with, um, with obstruction of justice and everything else. Uh-oh. Well, the judge said that, um, that he was never going to allow them to do that. Did they show up at your place one time and you were doing drugs? This is before you were arrested. Yeah, and they, they told me that I was gonna be, I was on the list and I was gonna be next. <laughs> um, which was really stupid because I mean, if I really wanted to, I could have left. But, but uh, yeah, we were doing, we were on K. We answered the door, coming back at the door with me and Esther Earl and my boyfriend Noel, and we were all high out of our minds on special K. And I opened the door with the plate of K in my hand, and um, the uh, two guys at the door said they were from the DEA, and I. I, it registered that they were from the DEA, so I remember looking down at the plate, and they looked at me, and they said, you know, got no mind, but just say, you know, go ahead, carry on as you were. They said, uh, there are bigger, more important things, <laughs> again, there are bigger, more important things you have to worry about than a, a plate of whatever you have. So um, they came in and really took us to pay home from the store while we just went on with the day, doing our okay K and coke, and, you know. You were doing K? in front of DEA agents. <laughs> mm -hmm. Damn. That's the 90s for you. Well, they probably also figured, you know, there's only two of them and there's three of us. And um, we, we might have been able to overpower them, you know? Oh, you thought you think that they were kind of worried because they didn't know how you were going to act? Maybe. And, and of course, they wanted our, they wanted our uh, cooperation. Oh, they wanted your cooperation. Yeah, they were willing to anything to do it. When you were in jail, were you in solitary confinement? I was. Now... A lot of people claim that that violates international law. It should. It should, huh? Yeah. Because the U.S. is a signee of the Committee Against Torture, and the U.N. has recommended members. There's no reason for it. There's no, there's no benefit from it. Nobody benefits from that. It's, in fact, it makes the problem worse. Whatever the problem is when you go into solitary, the problem is worse when you come out. How long were you in solitary for? Um, five years. Five years? Uh -huh. Holy shit. Which is, which is not all that unusual. Solitary is 23-hour-a-day lockdown, right? It's actually 24 hours because um, that hour that you that they will to um, brag about includes the time it takes to get to the yard and time it takes to get back because you know so much, so many things you have to go through to get to the yard. It takes a good 15 minutes to get there and a good 15 to get back. So now you've already taken half an hour out. Wow. And the yard, when I say the yard, it's actually just a cage, and you're just you're alone in it. And it's about eight by eight, and you're in shackles and handcuffs. So you're not really out anywhere. Most people just don't go because it's so much hassle. You have to be stripped on the way out and stripped on the way in, and handcuffed and shackled and um, one at a time, and then waiting in line. And you know, so most people just don't want to go through that, so they don't go out, which takes the 24 hour lockdown. And they make it as difficult as possible to go out. Now, there's studies that show that it prolongs depression. And, you know, as, as humans, we're, we're, we're social animals. We can't just live in a cage. And what this right. prolonged depression does is it actually shrinks the hippocampus. And that's the part of the brain that helps us orientate ourselves and controls emotions. I definitely noticed signs of PTSD from it because I, I noticed that I just sat down and crying for no reason, just in, in, in a little of a department store or, you know, whatever. And um, 
it always, I, I, I just subconsciously know that that's where it's coming from. I don't know exactly why, and I can't pinpoint anything, but I just know that's where it's coming from. And I think we'll stop right there. Jim's Veld is available on iTunes, on SoundCloud, on Sprecher, and on Stitcher Radio. If you like this, please share with all your friends and family. I would greatly appreciate that. And please also subscribe and comment on iTunes. That does matter these days. I want to again thank Michael for his time. He was very, very gracious. Thank you, Michael. So for Jim from Jimsville, I thank you again for listening. Peace. Asparagus. I'm selling you my peace things. <laughs>